Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. Tax Reform 2.0 to the European Union's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Leader. You can find these podcasts on YouTube at youtube.com slash Doug McConey. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're recording from Westminster Studios in St. Louis, Missouri, where I'm excited to have Mike DeFranzo back on the podcast. Mike is PwC's Washington National Tax Services, international tax leader, and former deputy associate chief counsel international at the IRS. Mike, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Doug. Happy to be here. I I heard this was number 93. I think I was on number three. So it's just amazing. It just seems like we just did this not that long ago. I know. And we've had a few intervening events since then, including a pandemic. And uh, I think we did one virtual podcast as well during the the pandemic. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Like, if I remember correctly, that original studio was in one of our uh, colleagues' offices it for was. those very first early podcasts, well, almost four years ago, Mike, if you, can, if you can believe that. So, Mike, very excited to have you here. A very controversial topic that we're going to be talking about today, which yeah. is the new foreign tax credit regulations and specifically really focused on creditability. Um, had yeah. weighed on the podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago and would encourage listeners, we're not going to dive into uh, the technical details of these regs, but really want to unpack some of the practical things right. that we've seen. But before we dive into the technical content, Mike, I, I did have a question for, for you. Um, you went to undergrad in Montana. In Montana, You're from Montana, right. went to undergrad yeah. in Montana State, yeah. went to law school at yep. uh, the University of Montana. So kind of a similar background. I'm a University yep. of Missouri guy, undergrad, yep. University of Missouri Law School. How the heck did you end up in international tax? Yeah, I did. Uh, after I graduated from law school, I did M&A for a little bit, a couple of years. Then I went on, got my LLM and ended up on the, on the East Coast. And how I ended up in international was actually by, I would say by fate or by accident. <laughs> it was really who I started working for and where I started working. It really wasn't my first choice. I expected to be an M&A. Okay. Um, and you got you went you got your LLM from NYU. I did. Okay. And I will tell you in retrospect, I'm very lucky it turned out that way because it's been a fantastic ride. Yeah, I do like to tease our M and A colleagues that they have a much more stable set of oh, rules. They do. Yeah, we can't cite 1960s and 70s rev rules in our practice. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, I'm 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 very glad that our yeah. our our paths were able to connect yeah. here in, in international tax. My story is a little is a little different in that. I had a tax class that I enjoyed after my in my yeah. second year of law school. I also happened to go to Europe on a backpacking trip yeah. with one of my buddies, and I naively thought that, well, I like tax and I like to travel international. So I then, with one of the now defunct, I guess at the time, big five public right. accounting firms, uh, ended up with an internship in international tax, fell in love, and have been doing yeah. it ever since. So, all right, so let's dive into the technical content. Um, and again, I mentioned I would highly encourage people to listen to the, to the, to the Wade podcast where we yeah. dive into some of the regs. But maybe you can help set the table for us um, before we get into some of the issues about what is the scope of these final regs specifically related to, to credibility, creditability and, and the broad impact. Um, yeah, Doug, there's, <clears throat> as, you, as you open, it's, it's a very controversial reg. Um, I don't think the government necessarily expected it to be quite as controversial as it is. Um, there are aspects we will, again, not get really into the technical, but when you're looking at the attribution provision and the cost recovery provisions of the reg, I think that's where the big focus and all of the noise has started to come up. Um, the regs are written through a lens of taking, you know, what is a U.S. 
tax and tried to sort of layer that around the world. So you're looking at how would we tax our income? How do we tax income? Does the country tax income in that way? And if it doesn't, you start to have questions about the credibility. And that's what we're going to focus on. And um, so it could be in, in, in the case of royalties paid or services, how's it being taxed from a withholding standpoint? Um, or how's it being taxed from an income standpoint mm -hmm. as it should if it's services? Um, when you get into cost recovery, are costs disallowed? Uh, what about interest? Are there limitations? Um, another big one is you know the recovery of costs with respect to IP. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until 1997 that we allowed cost recovery with respect to IP. It's so, <clears throat> but you look around the globe. I think um, I understand all of Latin America doesn't allow cost recovery with respect with respect to IP except for Brazil. Mm -hmm. Um, so then you start to ask questions and then you go through this list and it's like, is, do we have issues? Right. So let's unpack that a little bit. Cause I think that's where we've just sure. seen a lot of questions and certainly a lot of stuff in the tax press, which we'll talk about, but really kind of, as you mentioned, kind of four requirements now for creditability, realization, gross receipts, cost recovery, and attribution yep. requirements. And to your point that the really big changes are in the cost recovery and the attribution right. requirements. So let's start where you did with the attribution requirement. Then that rule generally provides that the tax must be reasonably similar to those imposed underneath under the U.S. sourcing rules. Correct. So we've seen a whole bunch of questions, as you mentioned, specifically with royalties. Then we also have seen services, right? Correct. Because we know royalties from a U.S. perspective, the withholding is based on where the IP is used. Right. Right, and, and I think there are a number of jurisdictions, Latin America is a great example, where there are payments that are being made, you know, that are royalties that are based on the, the where the payor is, not, right. the, not where the IP is utilized. And so maybe talk a little bit about that, because there's been a number yeah, of right, questions. Yeah, right out of the gate, that, that presents an issue. And when you start thinking about, it, yes, Latin America in particular, with the withholding taxes and the way, in, in, and especially in the way they, they look at IP, so royalties, um, becomes problematic, and it's it's always been quite different than than maybe what you'll see within uh, OECD countries around the world outside of Latin America. There's 189 countries, and so you got 189 different answers about how you how taxes are done, and, and none of them are the same. Um, and so, right away, if you take the tech industry, uh, for example, big issue is what are we going to do with those withholding taxes? Mm -hmm. And you start clicking through the countries and how is it taxed? And even though the answer might be the same, if we're coming out of the U.S. in some way, shape, or form, the form of the law in the way it gets there is really the driver to the technical question of whether or not you've got a creditable tax. And is it similar or substantially similar to what we have? And so... The analysis is labor intensive. That means pulling um, the local law, talking to uh, local tax professionals, understanding it, understanding um, the business arrangement, and then laying it against these 400 pages of regs, uh, in particular, that, that provision of those regs, and trying to figure out, do you have an issue or not? Yeah, so let, let's restate that, because I mean, it's it's kind of, it's mind boggling, I right. think, as we've been thinking about it as a firm, as we've been talking to, to taxpayers, and frankly, yeah. even other advisors, I just want to echo that point that every withholding tax that is being yeah. imposed, where a US taxpayer is taking a credit, and that could credit could be in the US yeah. as a 901, the credit also applies for guilty, yeah. right, for the 960s. Yeah. 
it's it's almost hard for me to to, to articulate this. Right. But to your point, you need to go. Th- taxpayers need to go through every single withholding tax that right. they are paying. Do the analysis under local law to, frankly, try to understand: right. is it is it based on the residence of the payer? Is it based yeah. on the place of use of the IP? Frankly, as we've already had some discussions with some of our non-U.S. counterparts, they have a hard yeah. time articulating, right. you know, what that what that underlying rule is. But to your point, you have to look at every single tax now is in play on creditability. And, and to your point also with with the tech industry, I mean, some of them have royalty models, right. some of them have service models, a combination right. of the two. And, you know, how other jurisdictions withhold for, for royalties and services is frankly often very different than, than how we do it in the U.S. Right. And, and often d- different than the rest of, of the globe. I mean, in particular, when you get to the services or even the, the sale of, you can, you can go back to the sale of um Package software, which you don't see anymore. I mean, Latin America always treated that differently. Yeah, you're dating yourself. I know. (laughs) They always treated that differently than the rest of the world. So let's talk a little bit about cost recovery, right? And so this new cost recovery rule requires that a tax base be reduced by significant costs attributable under reasonable principles to gross receipts consistent with the U.S. code. Yeah. And so this is really relevant for, frankly, most of the income taxes, right, right that we see around around the globe. Correct. So maybe talk a little bit about that. What do you? What are some of the issues that you're seeing? You had mentioned, you know, IP, for IP example, is a big one. Um, interest is generally a, a big one. Um, it's not uncommon for jurisdictions to have some limitation on on the deductibility of interest. The United States has limitations around it. Although you could argue that our 163J is really a timing um, limitation. Um, so it's not does because of the indefinite carry because forward, of the indefinite right? carry forward. If we it was ten years, would it be you know a, a disallowance? Um, so you really get into the questions. What we're missing then is is the, there really just isn't a lot of guidance. A lot of so you start looking at the local country law and start asking a lot of questions. Now it's an absurd example, but what if you had you know country and this was used in a conversation I was having with um, some some colleagues at another firm. You know, if you had a country that disallowed uh, cost recovery with respect to red cars that were owned by the company or by the taxpayer, you know, is that a problem? Um, maybe, uh, you know, maybe not um, because it's de minimis, but mm-hmm. you start to run into how strictly are you going to read these rules? How strictly, I guess the ultimate question is how strictly is the government going to read the rules? Um, and that really answers the question. And, and that is raising all kinds of concern because, again, 189 countries times however many taxes each one of those countries has, which is more than one, you have to get in and do that factual analysis, just like the withholding tax, and it is labor-intensive. Again, that is calls with the local uh, tax professionals. Right. That's looking at uh, statutory, regulatory, all the, all the law, usually in another language, translated in English, hoping the translation is, is accurate, and then making the determination. Yeah, and to your point, I mean, I think that you know what we saw with the anti-tax avoidance directive, right? right that Europe, you know, now yeah. has relatively consistent uh, yeah. interest limitation yeah. rules. Because I think interest is a yes. great example. Well, how closely does the interest limitation rules in a foreign jurisdiction right. need to mirror right. to the interest limitation rules in the U.S. for us to to be on the same base? And right. I think that. Even in Europe, where there was a general standard, yeah. every jurisdiction did it a little bit different. And so I know one of the challenges is like, well, how close does that need to be to the U.S. limitations, right? Generally, yeah. it's 30%. Well, it was EBITDA. Now it's EBIT. Right. 
you know, as we look at, at Europe, you know, if those are differences, does that potentially like, and I, I think many of us would have assumed that Treasury did not intend to make, you know, these very developed countries and our trading partners in Europe, their corporate income taxes, non-creditable. But I mean, the fact is that the taxpayers are going to need to, to document and support, you know, the, the credibility of this and do that analysis. Yeah, that's exactly right, Doug. I mean, if you, you get into the mind of what the reg writers were probably trying to do, they were trying to target certain taxes around the world that they didn't like. Um, some of those have been in the press over the years. Um, yeah, like the digital, digital service, service tax, tax right. in particular. Right. And then they have the lens, as we talked a little right. bit about with Wade, of Pillar 2, yeah. right? And I mean, you, you understand the policy, right. right? That you don't want the U.S. FISC right. funding this you know, arguable exactly. overreach from foreign right. jurisdictions. But, but it almost feels like they've narrowed the gap. But exactly. So when they wrote the rules to target those things, they wrote the rules in such a way to make sure they got them. But then they wrote them in a way that got a lot of taxes that you're absolutely right. I do not believe they intended to, to really have any questions around. Um, but yet we have to go through it. And there's, there's no shortcut. There's no simple way. You have to look at the French income tax right. and figure out. Um, I'm pretty confident that if you do, you'll get there at least. Um, that's not one I've looked at, so I can't say. But um, you, but you still have, have to, to go analysis. through it. You have to do right. it. So, Mike, one of the other requirements is that the taxpayer or that the tax has to be based on an arm's length standard in determining the tax base um, of, of, of the tax. We already know, like within the U.S., right, like the AF of the election to be able to potentially use the AFR for interest, it's deemed to be an arm's length standard. Well, there are a number of other jurisdictions, and one of those that comes up is, is Canada. For example, they have what's called their pertinent loan or indebtedness rule. Right. That the way I think of it, it's similar to it, like a 956 type rule. If you're going to lend around Canada or, or out from under Canada, then you have to deem a certain amount of interest, or you have to uh, have a certain interest rate, and that's deemed to be arm's length. But yet, that may not be consistent, right, with what the actual arm's length interest is. And I mean, that's just one example uh, of a number. Right. And then the question is, as well, is that deviating from the arm's length standard? Does that mean that the the taxes imposed would no longer be creditable? And presumably, that wasn't the intention of these rules. Well, pr presumably not. However, I do think in in certain situations, the government was aware that there were some countries that did deviate from from arm's length. And that's why that that's in there. And they meant to do that. But you're right. Thinking about our system, thinking about every system, there's a there's an exception to every rule. Like it's right. put in place, yeah. it seems so. Um, there are there are deviations in our rules from uh, a true arm's length standard. There are deviations in our rules um, for a lot of things. Like even when you look at stock comp, we have limitations on stock comp right. and deductibility. Of it. We have limitations on interest, whether that's a timing limitation or whether it's, you know, effectively a disallowance for some taxpayers who can never, never catch it because the carry forward is just too big. Um, we have these deviations. So then you have to ask yourself. Um, is it significant enough? And it becomes sort of this judgment call, which is very difficult. So not only all the work, the labor going in understanding, but then you're, you're making judgment calls about it um, against a very stringent set of rules that have moved, removed, we'll talk about it a little bit later, they've removed the fudge factor out of the regs that says if you're close, you're okay. Now the language is much more narrower and you have to get, it's, it again has to be similar to 
the U.S. and and by that they mean really similar. Right. And maybe the last thing that that I'll mention with respect to some of these new standards is is the exception for for treaties. For yep. so for royalty service payments that are otherwise subject to treaties. You know, one of the things that we've seen as we do the analysis is that in certain jurisdictions the statutory rate may yep. be the same as the actual rate in the treaty. Right. And so then there's this fundamental question, well, are you relying on the treaty if there is actually yeah. a treaty or uh, are you relying on the local statutory rules? And I think right. that you obviously then have to look at the entire treaty and say, yeah. okay, well, am I actually relying on that for purposes of the lower rate or am I relying on for, for something like the foreign tax credit limitation yeah. or other aspects of, of the right. treaty? But you know, frankly, questions that I, I hadn't really thought about right. or needed to pose and then to your point then, then it, it requires a discussion with that with foreign counsel to really understand, okay, to understand how is that 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 payment treated from a local perspective and is it subject to the treaty or is it really just the statutory withholding rates? Yeah, ex- excellent point. And you know what I've what I've found with treaties is something I actually haven't done for a long time is you, you obviously have the treaty, you have the technical explanation that's prepared by Treasury, which will sometimes give you a little bit more. So you're pulling that in. And then the Senate Foreign Relations Committee is actually who approves treaties, and then they prepare, and JCT will, will prepare. And so you're having to look at all the explanations to try to figure out what the answer is. And first, was the tax really covered by the treaty? Right. Um, was it intended to be covered by the treaty? And then how do you how do you deal with it? How do you deal with it in the context of the anti-deferral rules? How do you deal with our anti-deferral rules? Um, how do you deal with it um, Yeah, in, in, in really applying that? If the rate's the same, is it, you know, are you really applying this treaty? Um, I'm not doing much compliance in my, my practice anymore, but I, you know, I think you do need to call out, I think, that if you're relying upon a treaty, you have to put that in your tax return. Right. Um, and if you didn't, because it didn't matter, right? <laughs> you know, now all of a sudden, maybe it does matter. Um, so there's a lot of thinking that that people are going to have to do, right? And and I just want to just reiterate that th- those issues are just kind of the tip of the iceberg. They are the tip of the iceberg, right? And and to your point, it really requires on a tax by tax yeah. basis that that analysis. So you know, Mike, there have been a number of pieces in the tax press, and really want to talk about kind of. You know some of some of the sure. bigger picture issues, sure. and and also want to talk a little bit about some industry specific issues. But there have been a number of pieces in the tax press, including from taxpayers, about the validity of these regulations, given yeah. the significant changes from the proposed regs related to credibility. What what are those taxpayers saying about validity? Yeah, I I, th- I think it started actually with the proposed regs that, that you know quietly, if you were you were paying a lot of attention to this space, you would have read some very thoughtful articles by some very astute people in the foreign tax credit space, really questioning, what are you doing here, and are you really in line with the intent of of our foreign tax credit? And I, I, I I'm sh- sure Wade called it out, or you guys called it out, but, but what I would say is what I'm consistently hearing from anyone who's in this space is. This is the biggest change ever to the foreign tax credits, more than any other legislative change that's occurred. So going back to the inception of our income tax in 1913, when you were allowed a foreign tax credit, right. this is the biggest change to that allowance. And is it in line with the intent? Um, we are one of the few countries that has worldwide taxation. This is really how we build our system, and we've given the credit, and that's what we've decided to do. These rules cut at that dramatically. And so there are questions around the validity. Now, it's really hard to answer 
uh, those questions. I'm not in a place, you're not in a place to answer it right now. I don't know that anyone necessarily is, but as this plays out, there will probably be more and more questions around that. Right. Yeah, we've also seen a number of large trade organizations that have yep. already publicly Correct. commented on these. We saw the, the U.S. Council for International Business, for example, yep. sent a letter to a number of folks at Treasury requesting a one-year delay of the regs, yep. really you know, focused on just the, the amount of work and time that, yep. that, that is needed to, to do this analysis. The Alliance for Competitive Taxation sent a yep. very thoughtful letter uh, to Secretary Yellen suggesting, frankly, a full withdrawal of right. the regs. One of the things that was mentioned in that uh, ACT letter was going back to the uh, attribution requirement right. and the issues with respect to withholding right. taxes on royalties is that the, this, the, these rules may actually cre create a perverse incentive for U.S. taxpayers right. to actually move IP offshore. In other words, those taxpayers that have IP onshore, if you can't get the withholding right. tax because maybe you don't have a treaty and it's not based on the place of use. But maybe maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, obviously one of the big things with TCJA was to, to open the U.S. again for business and, and having IP here. So there's a number of companies who, who brought IP back, but when you bring the IP back, you still have uh, withholding taxes happening in the use of the IP. And now if you've got the questions around credibility, and for a lot of companies it becomes you know, when you start going down the list, not creditable, not creditable, not creditable, once it gets significant enough, then it becomes a decision, do we need to move this back offshore and run it between two other jurisdictions that don't have such rules? And, you know, that that is a fair point. I think, to your point, there's been a few, uh, actually quite a number, uh, who have put in comments. I think there's a lot more coming. Yeah. There's a lot more coming, as I understand. Right. Um, yeah, I'm certain that that was yeah. not the intent of of Treasury, right? right to design right. a a system that could right. actually encourage that that IP movement. Right. But all of a sudden, that's got to factor into the math. And then obviously, right. like how that IP is moved, there is a tax cost for for there to is. make sure our listeners understand yeah. that moving that IP obviously does have tax consequences. And whether you do it as a license or whether you do it as a full as a right. three fifty one contribution, it's subject right. to three sixty seven D. So obviously, that has tax consequences, but. For taxpayers that are unable to get a credit in the U.S. for those withholding taxes, that significantly yeah. can change the math and the model. It does. All right. So, Mike, as I mentioned in the intro, you previously served as Deputy Associate Chief Counsel International at the IRS. Based on, on these prior experiences, can you talk a little bit about the government will do in the administration of these regs? I mean, you had mentioned sure. that, I mean, this is such a massive change, right? And right. Are we going to be able to get revenue rulings or rev procs? And when I, I, I yeah. know I've heard from from taxpayers like, well, when are we going to get the list? Right? Yes, where where know, is this magic, magic list, list right. of both corporate income taxes, withholding taxes? You sure. know, what did Treasury have in mind? Well, Treasury could have done something here very similar to check the box. So check the box, of course, was a creature of reg, you know. Right. construction itself and what they did there is they created a per se list and there are people that sit within my my former group ACCI Associate Chief Counsel International who review on a regular basis and add to the list what's a per se company what's not you know what and then that that is the way that area works they could have done that here it would be a much bigger undertaking maybe but that was an approach they could have taken they didn't um, I suppose if they took that approach, they might have had some arguments with taxpayers about their determination as to what was a credible tax and right. what wasn't. I'm sure. And they probably would have had the State Department getting some phone calls from some countries saying, what do you mean our, our tax is not credible? 
So they, they steered away from that. They gave us a list. Um, unlike legislation, where you often get legislation, and what came to mind right away was there's a provision in in, in our code. It's a FERPTA provision. It, I'll call it out for those who really want it. It's 897L. It was written about foreign pension funds. And when it was written, it's it has a qualified foreign pension fund, but it was written in a way where those drafting the legislation looked at U.S. pension funds to say, all right, well, what is a U.S. pension fund? And then they wrote the legislation. Of course, what is a U.S. pension fund is not necessarily what is an Australian pension fund or right. a U.K. pension fund. They're all different. Or you get into Scandinavia, they, they start to have a different. So with the regs, they were able to sort of get at the intent of what Congress wanted to do here and relax the rule, broaden the rule, kind of capture. When you start with the reg, not with legislation, now you're talking about issuing new published guidance and it has to be equivalent to or in a position where taxpayers can rely upon it. So it's gonna to have to be a rev rule, it's gonna to have to be a rev proc, mm -hmm. or it's going to have to be PLR interpretations. Now, I don't think they're gonna get there. If you look at the PLR space, there's a, a former uh, AC, ACCI colleague who was there for the longest time, I won't name her, but uh, she was relating to me that when she was in government, she was there from the start of, of ACCI, so she was there a long time. Mm -hmm. She said she worked on like 100 PLRs. Now, that is not what they're going to do. So they're going to look at the possibility, I, I think, or they're going to get pressure to give some reprocs. They're mm -hmm. going to give some guidance here, especially when people start to work out that there are real problems with these regs in certain spaces. Yeah, the administrability, if they would try to go with Correct. PLR, is just impossible, no. right? Because no. as we mentioned, every taxpayer That's has right. to look at every tax. And so uh, you know, the hope is is that we could get rev rules or rev procs to, to, right. to provide some guidance yeah. on, particularly some of these sure. kind of, with our major trading partners at, at, at a minimum, would be welcome. Correct. All right, Mike, so I wanted to call out a couple of sectors, uh, a couple of specific sure. industries that you work in where I think you know there's a lot of unanswered questions or maybe even a disproportional impact. And so let's start with energy. You spent a lot of time down in Texas mm -hmm. and, and in the energy sector. These regulations have a significant impact and have a real risk of double tax. So can you talk a little bit about the the energy sector and you know it's a lot different and so far as you know first of all where they operate and then more importantly how those taxes are imposed yeah so generally the the energy sector has has two types of of income they have what's called fori and fogi fori is is what you would think of as as sort of the processing of of the the energy um and then the the fogi is sort of just the the income related to the uh, energy source, whether it be gas or oil. Yeah, the extraction. Right, the extraction, piece. right? And <clears throat> excuse me, right now the the fogi aspect of it not an issue, but of course, and we'll talk about it. Maybe we'll come back to build back better. We'll pull that into guilty, so it may soon be relevant and. Your That's, point on that is that currently the extraction income is not is, guilty, is and not. so there's no 960 credit associated right. with that. So it's really not right. an issue. But the proposals we'll with the Build Back Better, and you know, we're we're recording this here in early March. You know, I, I'm beyond predicting what the heck's going to happen with right. U.S. Tax Reform 2.0. But if it does rear its head again, Fogey, to your point, now would become guilty. So whether each of those, yeah. whether those the, the taxes imposed on that would be creditable, become a really yeah. important issue. So when you get into it, whether it's Fourier or Fogey, typically what happens in the energy industry is there's a contractual relationship that is struck with the sovereign where, where the energy um, source exists. 
And under that contractual relationship, they will determine how they're going to tax the income related to the extraction activity or the production activity that occurs in the country. And that contract um, sometimes draws from local law, references local law, but invariably tweaks it, changes it. Sometimes it's a complete standalone contract. That constitutes a separate levy. So that, you know, we talked about 189 countries and all the taxes around the world. The U.S. has many taxes. Every country has many taxes. Now you're talking about every one of those contracts constituting a separate levy. So now you're having to do an individual analysis on those contracts. And that is just an incredible undertaking. And and you can have, I think, a general understanding that there may be certain things that are just disallowed out mm-hmm. of the gate. Uh, I you know coming to mind, interest deductibility is is probably one of those that is contractually just not there, because they don't want uh, to have a situation where you you make a huge investment, lever it up, right, and then don't pay any tax. So <laughs> they they really want to get at the they really want to get at uh, the the income related to that production. So um, that raises a question right out of the gate: Do you have you know, uh, major issues for the entire energy industry. And it, it almost goes without saying, but everybody, the reason Fogey's not in there is because it's high tax. So now we're talking about, you know, taxes that are not 15%, which is that global minimum, but you're looking in some countries at taxes as high as 50% right. that are being levied. So a disallowance of a 50% tax on, on a stream of income is enormous. And and before these regs, I mean, there was some analysis that had to be done as there was with the dual capacity Correct. taxpayer, right? So so right. that analysis and that was yep. fairly mechanical, yep. right? In the regulations, and so there was always some element. But now that, that you still have to do that analysis, right? And now it's the what's what's potentially creditable. You've got to do this additional analysis. You you do, and I think the big point is is you look at where the law was before these regulations and before these regulations changed the world <laughs> that for for uh, U.S. taxpayers on December 28th is there was a fudge factor and there was you could look at uh, you know did you have something that was substantially similar what did that mean and if you could take the income stream and you put it in the US and and it operated pretty much and would be taxed you know more or less the same way it was okay but now you have to look at the cost going back to cost recovery if you have this allowance in there um, even though you don't have that that happening you don't have interest you don't have that um, if there's a disallowance of of interest, you have a problem, and so that fudge factor is gone, and that makes it uh, very very worrisome, I think, for the energy industry. So let's turn to the financial services sure. industry. So I had Puneet on yeah. um, on the last on the last episode to talk really about mm-hmm. ATAD three and the the broad impact that those rules have on the, right. the financial services industry. But as we mentioned, I mean, it impacts all multinationals, yeah. U.S. based and foreign 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 based multinationals. Um, but the FS industry now with the foreign tax credit regulations right. to kind of pile onto this, um, a lot of questions specifically related to partnerships. And when we right. had, when we, when we talked on the last podcast, we talked about investment vehicles and choice yep. of investment vehicles and obviously pass through and flow through from right. a U.S. perspective is a, is a very common investment vehicle to be able to pull sure. investors together, you know, for a variety of whether it's private equity, right. asset management, whatever the case may be. Talk a little bit about what are some of the issues that you're seeing in that space, um, specifically related to, to partnerships or other areas. Yeah, I, w- I would say it's a partnership issue. So yes, it's very relevant to the fund space, but the fund world is not the only place. It's also all the, the joint ventures Fair that are enough. out there. And yeah. it, and when you look at green energy today, many of the green energy products are being um, funded by companies 
who are setting up partnerships. Um, and Fair those enough. partnerships yeah. are then got investors, even just you know mom and pop investors coming into them. And there's, there's a reason for that. And it's driving huge amounts of capital. Now, there's, it seems like this wasn't, I don't know for sure, but it seems to me like this just wasn't considered at all when these rigs were put forward. And the reason I come to that conclusion is um, in the very recent past, there was a, a movement to change the, the reporting for partnerships. Right. So we always had the K-1. Now we have the K-2 and the K-3. Right. And it's not a mountain. K two is not a mountain. It's it's about uh, information reporting and really getting all of that reporting in a way that that it can be digitized by by the funds, um, can be digitized and submitted to the IRS, um, and it shows up on on forms now that the investors can use. The problem is we have this question under under the the sub K rules seven hundred two. It, it it says you have to call out the foreign taxes that are paid doesn't say you have to call out what whether it's creditable or not. Right. So then you go to 6038B, which is the information reporting, and you start looking, well, do you have to determine is it creditable or not? No, it doesn't say anything about that. So there is a question today, I believe, as to who's got the response. Somebody's going to have the responsibility if they're going to put it on a return and take it. And ultimately, that would be the investor. Um, but are, is an investor in a position even... Uh, no, uh, unless they get, okay, you told me what, I've, I've got these foreign taxes, but now you got to tell me what tax is it, how much yeah. was it, now i got to go do the analysis right. as to whether or not that, that tax in, you know, pick the country, Egypt or wherever around the right. world is a creditable tax. Is that a burden that, that should land on investors or is that a burden that's going to land on the funds? And if it's going to land on the funds, it's big. If it's going to land on the investors, it's big. So I think that's an open question and a big one. It's kind of that sleeping giant out there in that industry. So more for the industry to think about. Yeah. I mean, just it, it, it's just amazing the number of, of big, broad questions that these yeah. final regulations yeah. uh, raise. So maybe in conclusion, Mike, what, what what should taxpayers be doing? I know you've already advised, like, you need to do an analysis on each tax. Yeah. But uh, is there anything else engaging with lawmakers? I mean, what what, what can ta- – I mean, because these are final regs. I mean, what, what should taxpayers it's, be doing? That's right. And you, by calling them the final regs, they're the law of the land. And, right. and of course, they, they govern us. Um, so I, I think there's a number of things. One, you know, get get to know what's out there. This is something that did come in kind of over the holiday mm-hmm. for a lot of people. A lot of people didn't miss it. It's also a giant package. So a lot of people probably look at it and they're like, oh, my gosh, I'm not going to read that. And a few other things going yeah, on like Pillar right. 1 and Pillar right. 2 and yeah. BBB rearing its head again. Right, Lots right. to keep up with. So you've got you've to know that they're there. you got to understand that if you've got foreign taxes, you have – a lot of work to do and you've got to start figuring out is the responsibility uh, for the tax if you're an investor coming through a fund is it yours you've got to work with the, the funds how am I going to get the information fortunately for their tax returns they've got another year um, <clears throat> but when you start thinking about other multinationals or other taxpayers they've got to determine it right now and that is a tremendous amount of work I think engaging with stakeholders, doing what you already referenced the the ACT letter, you referenced um, so many other organizations. So getting with business organizations and representation, getting some comments to Treasury, getting them to perhaps uh, rethink is there more guidance that we have to put out here, uh, even to the point of should the regs be uh, delayed or withdrawn as as ACT suggested, um, and then you know there's unfortunately no getting around. Uh, if all those things fail, 
and we're stuck with the ranks, which which we have to assume we are right now, there is a tremendous amount of works to be done, and it's not easy. So you got to start now. Right. All right, Mike. Well, on on that note, the, the the only good thing about all of this is that there's plenty of content for the cross border tax talks. And oh so, yeah, this this won't go away. Yeah, I'm this sure is. This will well, I'm up. sure that we'll have yeah. additional discussions. Yeah. Hopefully, as we get some additional guidance, yeah. and I and I will just mention again that, you know, I I think that we all, you know, taxpayers, advisors yeah. understand the need for Treasury to be able to protect the base, particularly as we Absolutely. think about DSTs yeah. as pillar yeah. two. I just think they may have overshot the mark a little bit. Oh, I, I, agree. I agree. So with that, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Mike DeFranzo, PwC's WNTS International Tax Services Leader. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.